And now it is my great honor to introduce the Secretary of the Interior, Deb Holland, to give opening remarks. Madam Secretary, you may turn your camera on. Thank you, Connie. Thank you so much. And good afternoon, everyone. Thank you for joining this public forum. I know people are tuning in from all over the country, which, which speaks to the importance of this issue. There is no doubt that oil, gas, and coal energy from our public lands and ocean has helped build our economy and power our nation. Fossil fuels will continue to play a major role in America for years to come. But too often, the extraction of resources has been rushed to meet the false urgency of political timetables, rather than with careful consideration for the impacts of current or future generations. During the past four years, the Trump administration offered vast swaths of our public lands and waters for drilling, prioritizing fossil fuel development above all other uses on public lands and waters. The potential impacts to people, water, wildlife, and climate were deliberately ignored, something the courts continue to address. While some corporations profited, taxpayers were shortchanged, and some Americans' voices were not heard. An Act Now, Think Later approach to managing our public lands and waters hasn't worked well. Not for the communities who live with the legacies of pollution, not for the coal and oil workers whose jobs and benefits are being cut, not for the local state, local and tribal governments who struggle to pay teachers and firefighters when the market drops, not for the tribal nations who are consulted too little and too late on projects that impact their communities for a very long time, and certainly not for the sustainability of our country and our planet. In order to tackle the climate crisis and strengthen our nation's economy, we must manage our lands and waters and resources, not just across fiscal years, but across generations. Now is the time for all of us to have a frank conversation about the future of our shared resources. I'll not pretend that this moment of reflection will be easy, or that we have all the right answers, but I can promise you that I'll listen to you, I'll be honest and transparent throughout this process. The pause in new oil and gas lease sales gives us space to look at the federal fossil fuel programs that haven't been meaningfully examined or modernized in decades. I want to be clear that the pause on new oil and gas lease sales does not impact permitting and development on valid existing leases. Further, oil and gas companies have amassed thousands of permits to drill on 38 million acres of public lands and oceans, an area larger than the state of Iowa. Today and over the coming weeks and months, we will look forward to hearing from you about our path forward. We're exploring ideas that leaders from both parties have brought forward to rethink how we manage energy and minerals on our public lands. We also we also continue to meet with governors on both sides of the aisle, hearing from Congress and engaging in consultation with tribal nations. President Biden's agenda demonstrates that America's public lands and oceans can and should be engines for local economies. We recognize that energy companies are innovating to tackle climate change and stay globally competitive. We know how to create more good paying union jobs through clean energy production. We can put people to work, restoring our lands and waters through a civilian climate core. 
and we can ensure that communities have the right tools and resources to support families that have been hurt by the oil and coal busts. My ancestors made subtle but constant changes century after century to how they farmed and cared for the land because they knew it was their obligation to leave a sustainable planet to me and to all of us. We too must take a longer view. Right now, more than ever, we need hopeful, practical and honest thinking about our public lands and waters. I look forward to working with you, including federal, state, local and tribal leaders to bring a measure of common purpose to how we manage America's public lands and waters and the oil, gas and minerals they hold for all Americans. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Secretary Holland. It's terrific to see you in that beautiful office. Um, appreciate you welcoming us all to the forum today. I know that you've got to leave us to get to another event. You're, you're double booked, um, but we're so honored uh, you could be here with us at the beginning. Thank you again. Hi, good afternoon, everybody. My name is Laura Daniel Davis, and I recognize that I live and work within the ancestral lands of the Anacostians in the Anacostia and Potomac River watersheds. I acknowledge the place-based knowledge of these peoples, and I'm grateful for their ancestral and current stewardship of these lands. My pronouns are she, her, and I'm the Principal Deputy Assistant Secretary for Land and Minerals Management here at the Department of the Interior. I wanna first say thank you to all the experts that are participating today. And thank you also to all those who are watching as we talk about the federal oil and gas program and gain insight to inform our comprehensive review. We're committed to moving forward in a productive and transparent manner with all of our partners. For us at Interior, President Biden's commitment to tackle the climate change threat is the thread that runs through all of our efforts. Like the secretary said, our principal charge is to manage our lands, waters, and resources, not merely across the fiscal years, but across generations. And I'd add explicitly for the next generations. I know that comment about the uh, fiscal year resonates for those of us who live in fiscal year time in and around Washington. In my role here, I oversee the agency's oil and gas leasing and permitting programs, as many of you are probably aware. We think there are a number of ways that the fossil fuel leasing program can better meet the needs of the American public, which has clear expectations on how we should be managing our shared public lands and waters. Through this review and in how we do our work, we think that we can ensure greater equity, transparency, and public involvement, shore up our environmental review processes, provide a fair return to the American taxpayer, and be sure that we're protecting the special and sacred places that we hear about from so many. These are some of the things that we're looking at in our review. We're very interested in your thoughts on solutions and improvements to the program. While we're undertaking this review, we're welcoming input. We're engaging in extensive public outreach as part of the comprehensive review, and that includes this public forum. We've announced too the opportunity for any interested members of the public or stakeholder communities, and we hope there will be many, to provide written input to the department through April 15th, feedback from the public is really critical to the success of this review. And we encourage members of the public 
to submit substantive ideas to address these issues we're gonna be discussing at energyreview at ios.doi.gov. I do wanna say just one further word about the feedback you may decide to provide. We don't really need volume. We're not looking for volume. We really want your substantive and innovative thinking on the issues we're talking about today and your considered recommendations for us. Additionally, we'll continue to conduct individual and small group meetings, as well as tribal consultation and engagement with governors and members of Congress. This effort will be comprehensive and will be critically important in informing an interim report this summer. I really wanna thank everyone again for being with us. And I'm gonna ask Nada Culver, the deputy director of BLM to pick up here. Good morning. Hoping we can get the slides up. Terrific. Um, good morning. Um, I'm Nada Culver, the Deputy Director of Policy and Programs at the Bureau of Land Management. My pronouns are she and her, and I recognize that I live and work within the ancestral lands of the Cheyenne and Ute people. I acknowledge the place-based knowledge of these people, and I'm grateful for their ancestral and current stewardship of these lands. Today, I'm going to provide a brief overview of the Bureau of Land Management's onshore oil and gas leasing program, both the manner in which these lands are leased and developed and the financial returns that our program yields. I'm going to go through much of this quickly to set the stage for the input from the panelists. And of course, as you've heard, this forum will be available online should you want to watch this PowerPoint again or just spend some time with our beautiful pronghorn antelope here. Also, I am sitting in Colorado and I know we have panelists and participants from Colorado as well. Many of us here are struggling with the events of the last few days. And I really want to thank you all for spending time with us still here today. Next slide, please. Just to reiterate the context of our forum today, uh, we are operating under Executive Order 14008, issued on January 27th, regarding tackling the climate crisis at home and abroad. As Laura mentioned, um, this executive order directed us to conduct a comprehensive review and reconsideration of the federal oil and gas leasing and permitting practices to look at the potential climate and impacts on these programs, and also specifically to look at potential adjustments of the royalty rates to ensure a fair return to taxpayers. And as noted, this order does not restrict energy activities on tribal lands. Next slide, please. This map shows you the federal lands and mineral estate. The Bureau of Land Management manages approximately 245 million surface acres shown here in yellow, as well as 700 million acres of the mineral estate. That's about 30% of our nation's minerals. Next slide, please. This is the legal framework for BLM's onshore oil and gas leasing program, also known as the parade of acronyms. Luckily for all of you, there will not be a test later on these acronyms, but we will use them throughout the presentation. The Mineral Leasing Act of 1920 established the authority for leasing federal fluid minerals and initial royalty rate, rentals, and other terms. The National Environmental Policy Act, or NEPA, requires the Bureau of Land Management to look at environmental consequences to air, water, wildlife, wilderness, communities, environmental justice, and our climate just to name a few, to engage the public and to consider alternatives prior to approving proposed actions. This law in terms of both the uh, scope of our environmental review and the opportunities for public engagement 
have led to um, most of the litigation around this program and resulted in some holds on our current leasing guidance. The Federal Land Policy and Management Act, or FLIPMA, establishes BLM's obligation to manage the public lands under the principles of multiple use and sustained yield, including for future generations. While energy development is one of the multiple uses, it is not elevated above others in this our governing law. Federal Onshore Oil and Gas Leasing Reform Act, or FUGLORA, directs the BLM to hold competitive lease sales at least quarterly for lands that are both eligible and available for leasing. The National Defense Authorization Act of 2014 permitted us to hold online auctions in addition to the in-person auction we've been holding. And the Naval Petroleum Reserves Production Act governs planning and leasing in the nation's National Petroleum Reserves, which includes the National Petroleum Reserve Alaska managed by BLM. Next slide, please. BLM's lands and resources, including the oil and gas that we manage across the nation are managed under approximately 150, 150 resource management plans or RMPs. These are required by FLIPMA and direct the BLM to manage again, pursuant to multiple use and sustained yield, trying to balance resource use and protection and conservation. RMPs are the basis for all resource allocations, including oil and gas, and will identify lands as open or closed to leasing as well as various degrees of detail on how subsequent oil and gas development can occur. Currently, most lands that are not legally required to be closed are open for oil and gas leasing under our RMPs. As a reminder, tribal lands are managed by the Bureau of Indian Affairs and lands in the National Petroleum Reserve Alaska are subject to a different legal scheme for planning. Next slide, please. The BLM's leasing process, the onshore leasing process under the Mineral Leasing Act can, consists of three steps, nominations, evaluation, and sales. Nominations or expressions of interest are informal requests for, lease, for lands to be included in leases. At the evaluation stage, parcels are looked at to consider whether they're available and also to address environmental impacts. Lease sales are first held as a competitive sale as required by FUGLURA. However, parcels that are not sold are available for non-competitive sales for two years after each sale. This is essentially an over-the-counter transaction. The successful bidder gains the exclusive right to develop the minerals and leases are issued for a 10-year initial term, which may be extended by production. Tribal lands are leased by the Bureau of Indian Affairs. And again, leasing in Alaska in the National Petroleum Reserve follows slightly different regulations. Next slide, please. Once a lease is obtained, an operator has to submit an application for permit to drill before drilling will be approved on the lease. At this point, conditions of approval are applied to govern development. This can require surveys to identify resources and will also identify measures to avoid or minimize harm to those resources. Initial NEPA analysis may be conducted at this stage, although BLM may also apply categorical exclusions from NEPA review or use determinations of NEPA adequacy instead. All development must comply with applicable laws and regulations, such as the Migratory Bird Treaty Act, the Clean Water and Clean Air Act, the National Historic Preservation Act, and the Endangered Species Act, just to name a few. The graph here shows APDs approved versus APDs received for fiscal years 2016 through 2020. 
In fiscal year 2016, approximately 2,500 applications for permit to drill were received and less than 2,000 were approved. In contrast, in fiscal year 2017, less than 3,000 APDs were received, but more than 3,000 were approved. Beginning in, 20, in fiscal year 2018 and continuing through 2020, the number of APDs approved um, was less than the amount of APDs received. However, throughout this time, there have remained thousands of approved and available permits. As of the end of January of this year, more than 7,600 APDs have been approved and are currently remaining available for use in drilling. At the same time, just over 5,300 APDs have been received and are pending processing and will be added to this total. Next slide, please. The environmental review process for oil and gas leasing and development is multifaceted and so includes opportunities for input and coordination with tribes, local governments, federal and state agencies, and the public at various times. BLM's land use planning process provides for public and government engagement throughout the process at required comment periods and consultations. At the leasing phase, there may be public comment on BLM's environmental analysis, although it is not currently required on all aspects of sales. And there is an opportunity to submit a formal administrative process. There have been variations over the years on how the public, tribes, agencies, and local governments have been able to participate in this process under BLM's guidance, leading to some legal challenges along the way. At the permitting stage, the BLM posts the APD for 30 days online and may, but may not, provide an opportunity for comment. Next slide, please. Some of the key terms that govern onshore leasing and development include these. The bonus bid, which is a minimum of $2 an acre. For non-competitive leases, there is no bonus bid paid, just a rental fee of $1.50 an acre. Rents are paid until production of paying quantities, at which point royalties are paid instead. For the first five years of a lease, rent is $1.50 an acre. And after that, for the next six to 10 years, it goes up to, yes, $2 an acre. And notably, there are not a lot of other items you can purchase for this price in this day and age. The royalty rate was set at 12.5% in the Mineral Leasing Act of 1920, over 100 years ago. While this is set as a minimum in our regulations, the Bureau of Land Management does not generally apply any different rate. A higher rate is used in NPRA leases. Royalties once received, approximately a half of those are shared with the states in which development is occurring. Minimum bond amounts were set um, generally in the 1950s and 60s for reclamation bonds, which are issued to bond for reclamation of a well after use is completed, are set at individual wells for $10,000 set in 1960. For all the wells in a state, $25,000 set in the 1950s. And for all the wells you might care to drill nationwide, $150,000, again, set in the 1950s. And yes, this is less than the amount required to register your car um, for insurance in most states. Next slide, please. Want to close out with a snapshot of the program as it exists right now. You can see that as of fiscal year 2020, we have 37,496 leases um, on 26.6 million acres. Less than half of those are currently in production, 12.7 million acres, with 13.9 million acres not in production. 
We have over 96,000 active federal wells, and the program contributes 7% of domestically produced oil and 8% of domestically produced natural gas. Through fiscal year 2020, we've received over $3.46 billion in revenues, including royalties, bonus bids, and rentals. As you can see from these statistics, the vast majority of income does come from royalties paid on producing leases. In fiscal year 2019, we estimated $71.5 billion of economic activity associated with the program and that it generated 318 or supported 318,000 jobs. Next slide, please. Because the executive order 14008 directed a review of the entire federal oil and gas program, we and our panelists today will be looking at opportunities for improvement holistically. And so we're going to leave the land and head offshore, and I'm going to hand this over to Amanda Lefton, the Director of the Bureau of Ocean Energy Management to discuss offshore. And I look forward to hearing um, the panelists' presentation going forward. Thanks so much. Thank you so much, Nina. Well, I, I don't promise to have any less acronyms in my presentation, uh, but that was great and learned a lot about the important programs at BLM and the critical nature of the review. As Nita mentioned, my name is Amanda Lefton. My pronouns are she, her, and I am the director of the Bureau of Ocean Energy Management. I recognize that I live and work within the ancestral lands of the Haudenosaunee and Mohican peoples. I acknowledge the place-based um, uh, place knowledge of these peoples and I'm grateful for their ancestral and current stewardship of these lands. Next slide, please. So in this brief presentation, I intend to provide an overview of BOEM, which is again, the Bureau of Ocean Energy Management, BOEM's role in leasing and permitting in order to provide context for some key questions we hope to explore today as we work towards achieving the goals of, that President Biden laid out in Executive Order 14008, tackling the climate crisis and abroad. So really, we're going to focus today on our overview of the offshore oil and gas leasing program. Next slide, please. So first, let me start with what BOEM is. So BOEM's mission is to manage the development of the U.S. Outer Continental Shelf, which I'll call OCS going forward manage the Outer Continental Shelf OCS energy and mineral resources in an environmentally and economically responsible way. And so that means that we have really a broad area of responsibility that primarily includes managing offshore oil and gas exploration, development of activities on the OCS, overseeing the development of renewable energy resources in federal waters, managing non-energy minerals, primarily sand and gravel, and ensuring that science-based environmental protection is at the forefront of our decision-making. As we seek to review the offshore federal leasing program in a comprehensive way, as envisioned in the order, we will primarily consider the royalties and other monies paid to the federal government to ensure that they amount to a fair return to the American taxpayer and account for corresponding costs to the climate. We also can imagine that there will be other opportunities to strengthen BOEM's approach to oil and gas program moving forward. Throughout this entire review, we will of course ensure 
that our actions respect government to government relationships with tribal nations and commit to principles of environmental justice in our decision making. Next slide, please. So as you can see from this slide, the offshore oil and gas program currently focuses on uh, planning and building the national program, which is a five-year schedule of lease sales. Um, it focuses on conducting lease sales and ensuring fair market value is paid, reviewing exploration and development plans to ensure that they adhere to the lease terms and regulations, evaluating the location and quantity of resources, as well as other considerations laid out here, namely financial assurances, uh, economic analysis, environmental studies, and so on. Next slide, please. So critical uh, to note is that our authority to operate this program comes primarily from the Outer Continental Shelf Lands Act, also known as OXLA, and the regulations that put out the law into action, which was found at 30 CFR 550-599. The National OCS Oil and Gas Leasing Program provides the basis for many, if not all of these activities, including the National OCS Program, which consists of our five-year schedule for oil and lease gas sales. Um, it is set by the Secretary of Interior based on rigorous assessment of available resources, extensive environmental review, and thorough economic analysis. OSCLA requires that we take into account economic, social, and environmental values, as well as the potential impacts of oil and gas exploration on marine, coastal, and human environment. For instance, the act specifies that there must be equitable sharing of developments of benefits and environmental risks. The current five-year national OCS program plans for 11 sales, 10 in the Gulf of Mexico, one offshore Alaska between 2017 and 22, and the program is set to expire at the end of June, 2022. Next slide, please. So as you can see from this very busy slide, this essentially goes over the planning and pre-leasing steps for uh, BOEM as we develop the five-year schedule and the national program for oil and gas leasing. I wanna point to a couple of things on the slide. First, the, the yellow boxes, that's what indicates the various opportunities for public comment as the national program is developed. The highlighted red blocks show the layers of environmental analysis that occur throughout the process. First, we start at a, at a programmatic level as we develop an EIS, and then we get into more specific site down analysis in the later part of the process. Uh, so you can see the, the entire evolution of developing the five-year program for the National OCS Oil and Leasing Program here, starting with a request for nomination, going into a draft proposed EIS, all the way through through program approval, um, and then ultimately the, the leasing schedule itself, which again calls for a nomination, continues with an additional environmental analysis, all the way up to a lease sale and leases being issued. We utilize, of course, NEPA review as part of this and have government to government consultations all throughout the process from the very beginning to the very end of the development of the program all the way to the leases being issued themselves. 
Before lease sale, Bohm considers fiscal terms, preliminary lease sale term the duration, lease stipulations, and other information for bidders. After the sale, but before leases issuance, each lease also undergoes a review to ensure receipt of fair market value. This analysis is meant to ensure that the leases issued on the public's behalf are based on sound economics. Again, as noted as required by the executive order, BOEM is considering ways to adjust royalty rates for future leases to incorporate corresponding climate costs. At this point, as you can see from this slide, we have 2,348 active leases covering about 12.5 million acres in the OCS. The production from these lease leases account for 15% of oil produced in the United States and 2% of the gas. In 2020, the department collected over 3 billion in revenues from OCS leases alone. I just want to note that uh, what you can see on this slide primarily actually is in the Gulf of Mexico, where uh, the majority of those leases are held. Before permits are issued, a number of environmental reviews occur. So as shown here, first at the programmatic level, so that's a big picture review, then working down to more site-specific NEPA for each geological and geophysical surveys. The Bureau of Safety and Environmental Enforcement is responsible for overseeing the actual operations and BOEM coordinates with them to work collectively to promote safety and to protect the environment. BOEM conducts environmental analysis and scientific research to assist in our decisions about the development of the OCS. Every year we fund and facilitate rigorous studies these studies are included in a wide variety of disciplines, such as uh, physical oceanography, atmospheric sciences, biology, protected species, social science and economics, submerged cultural resources, and environmental fates uh, uh, and effects. Some of this work has addressed managing resources amid a changing climate. Ecosystem science studies try to discern effects of the OCS activity from those in a changing climate, during environmental reviews, BOEM considers how resources are affected both by activities we regulate and the changing world. We also collect data on criteria air pollutants and greenhouse gas emissions through our web-based emissions reporting tool, which is the OCS AQS, if anyone is interested. And we evaluate both upstream and downstream emissions associated with OCS production. These results were monetized using the social cost of carbon for sales in the 2017 and 2022 program, which again, we are currently in. Today, we're continuing the conversation about policies and processes the Department of Interior should examine in its comprehensive review of the federal oil and gas leasing program. Again, keeping in mind the goals of the executive order 14008, tackling tackling climate crisis at home and abroad. We will use this information to further solicit ideas, information and analysis for the review. So today, as, as Laura noted, is, is one important opportunity to have a conversation about uh, the comprehensive review, what should be included as we move forward and the critical, critical substance and expert feedback that needs to be acknowledged. Uh, so next slide, please. To that end, 
we invite you to please submit additional information for us to consider. As you submit this information, uh, we appreciate substantive uh, expert feedback um, rather than uh, a, a large quantity, it would be incredibly helpful to understand uh, uh, sort of the key substance that should be considered. Laura said already the email address to send it to, but I'll repeat it here and you can see it on this slide. Additional information should be submitted to energyreview.ios.doi.gov. We are asking for you please to provide the input should you choose to do it by April 15th of 2021. With that, I'd like to turn it back to Connie who can go over some housekeeping before she introduces the next panel. Thank you so much everybody for your time, appreciate it. Thank you, Amanda, Nada, and Laura for your presentations. Um, I do have a couple of housekeeping notes. Since this is a Zoom webinar, your microphone and video will be disabled for the event. Uh, there will be no chat function, but if you need to leave the Zoom webinar, you can also rejoin the event at doi.gov forward slash events, where there will also be. Okay. Um, and now we'll begin the panel and presentation part of the forum. We will hear presentations and questions and answers by invited trade associations, I'm sorry, by invited individuals representing environmental justice and frontline communities, academia, oil and gas industry trade associations, indigenous organizations, conservation organizations, and labor groups. Each panelist will be brought onto the screen for a five minute presentation. There will be a five minute timer on the screen and we ask that presenters please adhere to the time limits. There will be the, the question and answer session after each panel. So we will begin with presentations from our indigenous experts. Joining us are Fawn Sharp, the president of the National Congress of American Indians, Mario Atencio, the board of directors from Diné Care, Nicole Beau-Romeo, like the executive vice president and general counsel of Alaska Federation of Natives. Fawn, when you're ready, you can begin. Good morning from my traditional homelands here at the Quinault uh, Nation. We are located on the coast of Washington State. I am so incredibly honored to be here today uh, to share some remarks with you. On behalf of the National Congress of American Indians, uh, thank you for holding this virtual forum to discuss the federal oil and gas program. I am Fawn Sharp, president of the Quinault Indian Nation and president of the National Congress of American Indians the oldest and largest organization comprised of sovereign tribal nations and their citizens. Executive Order 14008, tackling the climate crisis at home and abroad, outlines a broad approach to addressing our national climate crisis that takes into account the nation's need for energy resources and independence. NCAI thanks the administration and Interior for their commitment to not only include, but to listen to and act upon the expressed needs of Indian country. Tribal nations are at the forefront and on the front lines of the climate crisis, responding to sea level rise, coastal erosion, ocean acidification, increased frequency and intensity of wildfires and altered seasonal duration. It threatens the health cultures and economies of tribal nations and their citizens. 
For example, my own tribal nation is involved in a multi-year, $60 million relocation project of the village of Tahola because the health, safety, and property of hundreds of our citizens are being lost to sea level rise and devastating storm surges. Sadly, my nation's struggles are, are not unique and represent only a portion of the climate-related concerns in Indian country. Vigorously working to mitigate and reverse the effects of these threats is on the minds of every tribal leader. As such, it is absolutely necessary that whatever steps are taken by the administration, the unique political and legal status of tribal nations and their citizens must be recognized. Climate solutions for Indian country must be developed in partnership with tribal nations and meet the federal government's trust and treaty responsibility, as well as the principles outlined in the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. The Department of Interior has an important role to play in addressing the climate crisis facing Indian country, while at the same time supporting tribal energy development. Energy resources on tribal lands are vast, largely untapped, and critical to the economic stability of many tribal nations and their citizens. Interior has estimated the tribal energy reserves on Indian lands could generate up to $1 trillion for tribal nation and surrounding communities, most of which are located in rural areas. Existing tribal energy uh, revenues provide billions of dollars to tribal nations and individual uh, Indian resource owners. These funds support tribal government services and individual citizens. They are also important to America's efforts to achieve energy independence and security and promote economic development, both inside and outside of Indian country. The development of energy, uh, Indian energy resources is a complex procedural and economic process that is carried out in part through tribal specific grant and lease approvals by Interior. This process involves many stakeholders, including federal and state agencies, tribal governments, individual Indian mineral owners, private oil and gas uh, operators, financing structures, uh, and competing tribal interests. It is necessary for the administration and Interior to understand that too often, well-intentioned but overly broad responses to the climate crisis are not good for all of Indian country. For example, Secretarial Order 3395 initially announced a temporary pause on new oil and gas leases on public lands. Initially, this secretarial order raised significant concerns for tribal nations, not the least of which was the order's lack of clarity in distinguishing tribal from federal lands. While the administration later clarified that the pause did not affect uh, tribal lands because tribal lands are not federal lands, the situation highlights some of the intricacies in addressing the climate crisis through administrative action, which affect Indian energy development. Additionally, it is critical that the administration continues to recognize tribal nations' inherent right to regulate energy resources on tribal lands in order to protect sacred landscapes, waters, and cultural practices of future generations. In conclusion, like other governments within the United States, tribal governments want to solve the social, cultural, and economic climate threats that face our communities. Tribal nations also want to ensure their citizens have jobs and local economies, of which they are an integral uh, part of and often uh, in, flourish within not only our regions, but locally. Tribal leaders and administrators are a brain trust of solutions. We know our energy resources and how best to manage them. We know our cultural heritage and how best to protect it. We also know the bold plan laid out in Executive 14008 provides a unique opportunity to lift up all of Indian country. 
Therefore, it is critical that the federal government's approach not only take into account, but is accountable to its trust and treaty obligations to tribal nations and its commitment to the principles of the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. With that, I'd like to thank you for your time today and the opportunity to speak to these critically important issues, and I'm happy to answer any questions that you may have. See you all. Thank you, Fawn, for your presentation. Please turn your camera off. I will now turn it over to Mario Atencio from the Board of Directors of Diné Care. Please turn your camera on for your five-minute presentation. Thank you um, to, the, to the organizers um, and, to, and to the, the other panelists here. I'm from calling from New Mexico, from the uh, occupied lands of the Tiwa people in Albuquerque, because there's a good internet here. And so I needed to be uh, at this very important meeting. Um, I'm caught uh, here um, to say that for far too long, the people in the Eastern Navajo Agency have been living an environmentally racist horror show. How does this happen? What do you mean by that? How does and how is it environmentally racist? Um, Twenty sixteen um, uh, oil well of a horizontally fracked well exploded within the exterior boundaries of the Naizi Chapter House, which is maybe less than a mile from the the uh, entry point to the Chalco Cultural National Historic Park. 50 families had to be evacuated. And even then there's still no emergency plan in place to how to uh, respond to an oil well explosion. Then in February 17th, 2019, on in and around lands which my mother and father are allotment holders are who are in direct um, trust relationship with the federal government uh, a fracking water spill fracked water frack fluid spilled on our land and may have uh, contaminated the groundwater 50,000 gallons of frack water a thousand uh, and about a thousand gallons of oil uh, very important to point out that there was no follow-up by anybody uh, everybody put, touched their hands on the on this great on this spill. Um, Fifty thousand gallons is a thousand barrels in the New Mexico uh, New Mexico Tech. Um, it's a mining a mining college in New Mexico. Has said that the the most um, the worst case scenario for a fluid fracking fluid happening in Sandoval County is about twenty five thousand gallons, and so this was double the worst case scenario as analyzed by New Mexico Tech. Um, no follow-up, nothing being done there. So you take this and then then now let's go down to environmental justice. All of these communities through the uh, through the Farmington Field Office Resource Management Plan labels all of the Navajo communities as environmental justice communities. And we just seen with the last administration there was a coordinated attack on the CEQ, uh, basically the, the 1998 guidance on environmental justice, the attack definitions of indirect effects 
and cumulative impacts from oil and gas in the region. The RMP was a really horribly done analysis inside inside the plan itself. And so we saw it as a complete failure as a trust a complete failure as a trustee to even to the to the people who are in trust relationship with the federal government in northwest New Mexico, which is one of the most sacred landscapes to to many tribes, nineteen tribes I think in county. And so uh, consultation and so all of this would have been eased if consultation happened. There's there's guidance on consultation. The GEO report released a report last year on on how tribes need to be consulted. BI, BIA, BLM all have these great uh, documents that show how to do consultation. And at every single point, nothing has been meaningful. And we've been saying this on record over and over and over. At one point, BLM walked out of their own consultation meeting with tribes. And so when, so what does this look like? So in, to, to close, I really want to highlight a billion dollars of wealth has come out of the counselor chapter house uh, community within Northwest New Mexico. And it seems like the community got even poorer because of the oil and gas in the ground. Um, so thank you for, for this time. We've got 10 seconds left. And I really am thankful for this time and really want to uh, welcome questions and if I can answer my will. Thank you. Thank you, Mario. I will now turn it over to Nicole Borromeo, the Executive Vice President and General Counsel of the Alaska Federation of Na Natives. Nicole. Thank you. Good afternoon. My name is Nicole Bromeo, and I have the pleasure of serving as the Executive Vice President and General Counsel for the Alaska Federation of Natives. On behalf of AFN, I want to thank the department for hosting this forum and for, and for inviting us to participate. AFN is the oldest and largest statewide Native organization in Alaska. Our membership includes 169 federally recognized tribes, 12 regional Native nonprofit organizations or tribal consortia that contract and compact to administer federal programs under the Indian Self-Determination and Education Assistance Act, and nine regional and 164 Alaska Native for-profit corporations that were formed under the Alaska Native Claim Settlement Act. Our mission, among other things at AFN, is to advance and enhance the political voice of the Alaska Native community on issues of mutual concern, including the energy policy of the nation as it relates to oil and gas. I would like to use our limited time today to underscore that by and large, Alaska Natives and AFN support responsible natural resource development because it forms the foundation of Alaska's economy, except that climate change is real because our people have consistently adapted to those changes in climate throughout the centuries, favor an energy policy at the national level that includes traditional forms as well as emerging renewables because this is the best practice in our view, know that it is possible to harvest rare earth elements in harmony with our traditional subsistence practices because our fish and game populations tell us so, and embrace Alaska's unique form of self-determination, which includes our native corporations, many of which do business in the energy sphere. To the first point, Alaska is an energy state. 
We are home to the largest oil field in North America at Prudhoe Bay, as well as wind farms at Fire Island, hydro projects in the Nushayak River, and other renewable technologies such as biomass and solar. However, no energy sector does more for Alaska's economy than oil and gas. Oil and gas accounts for approximately 25% of all jobs and wages within our state and employs tens of thousands of Alaska Native families through a Native Utilization Agreement that was negotiated by the Interior Department and Alaska Pipeline. This agreement has steered hundreds of millions of dollars to Alaska Native families over the decades through jobs and wages. Because Alaska is an energy state, Alaska Natives know that the demand for energy is increasing and the 30 by 30 plan to move away from fossil fuels will not lessen that demand. The U.S. has gained many benefits by becoming energy independent and we should not gain those, um, that ground that has been lost. To the second point, Alaska is also on the front lines of a changing climate. Alaska Natives know that the earth is warming, water temperatures are rising, storms are intensifying, and protecting the planet for future generations is our collected and shared responsibility. President Biden is right to focus on climate change and environmental justice. However, AFN respectfully asked the administration to implement a measured shift away from traditional forms of energy to emerging opportunities. AFN also asked that an equitable share of federal resources from executive order 14008 for disadvantaged communities be set aside for Alaska. Our state literally has 30 communities that are on the verge of falling into the sea or river during the next major fall or winter storm. To the third point, Alaska natives do not operate in an either or space when it comes to the nation's energy policy. We favor both traditional and emerging forms because a combination of both best serves our state and our people. The Alaska Native community refuses to be caught between extraction industries and environmental con conservation groups. Our people live comfortably between both. To the fourth point, subsistence hunting and fishing is critically important to Alaska Natives. We use our seasonal harvests as our check and balance to energy projects within the state, particularly those involving extraction. This is how we know we're being good stewards of the land, and this is how we know that we are passing those high marks. As such, AFN believes that AF, um, oil and gas projects can go forward with, with proper environmental safeguards. And we encourage the Biden and Harris administration to work with private industry on existing operations, namely the Willow Project in Alaska. Finally, Alaska Native self-determination is the gold standard because of the way in which we settled our land claims with the federal government and created Alaska Native corporations. Those corporations today hold 44 million acres of land, many of which abut and are adjacent to federal lands. Decisions made by the department therefore have an outsized impact on Alaska Natives, particularly with respect to oil and gas. Alaska Natives selected our lands through ANCSA for its oil and gas development potential. We should be able to develop those opportunities instead of being penalized. Thank you very much for your time today. We appreciate the opportunity to present. Connie, you are mute. Thank you, I knew it would happen. Um, thank you so much, Nicole. We'll now have a 10 minute Q&A discussion with our panelists and interior leaders. So Fawn, Mario, and Nicole, please turn your cameras back on and I'll turn it over to you, Laura, Nada, and Amanda. 
Great. Um, this is Laura. I'm going to kick it off and we're going to do our, our very best here to try and be interactive. <laughs> this is very hard setting, but we're all getting used to it after a year. Um, so I'm going to kick it off and then uh, we're going to go around and you guys should kind of jump in and out uh, as makes sense. Um, and again, thanks to all of you for taking the time to be here. And I'm going to I think we might start in the order in which you appeared, but then, like I said, we're hoping to mix it up and be a little bit interactive. So, uh, President Sharp, it's really uh, an honor to see you again, and, and really uh, also an honor to have you with us today, and I, I appreciate your comments so much. Um, and I, this is a, a bit of a high-level question, but just digging in a little bit in terms of as we are looking at the, the oil and gas leasing and permitting programs, um, are there sort of, you know, specific practices beyond, I think everyone mentioned consultation, um, that we can be doing better to better honor our trust responsibility to Indian country as we are, are, are looking at all these processes? Yes, thank you. I, I really appreciate that question. And as you could imagine, with President Biden's executive order on consultation, there's a renewed energy around Indian country to step back and, and really imagine what's our vision for how we want to directly engage with the United States. And the, the first basic principle is we seek political equality at the table. Government to government uh, discussions are bilateral. And when we come to the table, we should be able to be honored, respected, and uh, we, we want to seek not only consultation, but consent. And so having regularly scheduled meetings between agency decision makers and leaders it would be helpful educating all staff on the government-to-government -government relationship and making training uh, available to tribal nations to comment would be another suggestion. I think uh, broadly incorporating the principles of the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples would be very consistent and in line with our vision for how we're gonna continue to advance and improve the relationship with the United States and specifically the Department of Interior. Great, that was really specific and thank you. And I was taking notes, I'm sure you saw me looking down. <laughs> Thank so you. thank you. Um, Nada, did you want to jump in and ask a question of Mr. Tensio? Sure. Um, Mario, the descriptions you gave of the impacts in your community were um, very evocative. And I don't think you got a chance to describe in detail some of the suggestions you might have of how we could better engage with your community and others in that area, slightly different than the consultation process, uh, maybe broader, but would love to hear some broader ideas from you about how to better engage your communities going forward and including how we might better capture the impacts you described that you also called indirect effects and, and cumulative. So speaking speaking the NEPA language, which we really appreciate also. Yes, um, thank you, Nita. Um, thank you for the question. How can, uh, the part of material be better. Um, in the EJ final guidance, it says that uh, NEPA specialists need to have full understanding of the cultural impacts of federal actions. And we are saying that within that, um, at the very least, that um, that consultation uh, go before, at least at the very least, the quorum of a local community chapter house and Eastern Navajo agency. And in there that the language, there might have to be there's, there's even language barriers there. And so it seems to be that the best way forward, speaking from as a spokesperson of in, uh, individual Indian allotment holders and as a board member um, of a Navajo Nation uh, 
the Navajo nonprofit is that's that's where it has to come down, and in there the consideration of the people, and um, for them to really understand that to have this facility of a, 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 a well pad that has six or seven wells on it that it's going to require a synthetic miner permit for uh, for air for for uh, the, the synthetic miner air air permit for to what's it called to release air air toxics into the, into the environment that needs that's a very hard that's multiple levels of jumping through and explaining in Navajo to the people that over a hundred tons of volatile organic compounds are going to be permitted to be released into your community. And to just to explain what volatile organic compounds and just how many really how many hazardous air pollutants are going to be that you're going to okay to be dumped into your community and what do hazardous air pollutants means and what and then going to the list from EPA what does that mean that they're cancer causing right because they're identified as HAPS so that is a long way to talk to, to people and right now we see consultation with dear tribal letter leader letters and postings at at a store in the middle of nowhere and saying oh that's our consultation and so getting down into the community and, and putting resources in there to present it in the in the indigenous language to the people and there they can really decide and and describe um what it is you're asking from them especially if you are in, talking from the lot t level um that's that's one thing i see as, as a as a good way to get this going forward and, um, and I think, I guess, what the, these field offices is to really put forward those tribal outreach coordinators. I think Farmington Field Office had a Navajo-specific outreach person, but all, all of a sudden was expanded to like 25 tribes when in, in the legal proceedings, it's supposed to be just for the Navajo people. But then it just seems like you need to hire more people than just the one person. So that's, that's one thing uh, quickly off right at the top of my head. Um, director. Thank you. Um, Mina, did you want to jump in? No, I just couldn't achieve the unmute, the uh, opposite okay. problem. So, so thank you very much, Mario. It's a lot to think about. And I'll pass it to Amanda. Thank you so much, all three of you, for those really uh, important and terrific presentations. I had a follow-up question for Nicole. I, I really was interested in your comments about how uh, Alaska is an energy state and uh, also, you know, really acknowledging that Alaska is in many ways on the front line of climate change. Um, and, and you talked a little bit about those emerging energy alternatives. I guess I'm curious from your perspective, as the department moves forward, um, what Alaska specific interest policies or practices should we consider as we uh, continue to review the oil and gas leasing and permitting program sort of in that context of climate change and otherwise from your perspective? Thank you for that question. And I'm gonna piggyback on what President Sharp and Mario um, have already said in terms of consultation. First and foremost, um, we wanna make sure that when the department consults with Alaska Natives, it includes all Alaska Natives, including our corporations. The department has a legal obligation under the 2005 Consolidated Appropriations Act to be consulting with our Native corporations on the same basis as tribal governments. So we would like our whole community present when these discussions are had first and foremost. And um, in, in terms of your your other, the other part of your question, we, um, 
don't view this, like I said, as as an either or um, like we have to pick fossil fuel or we have to just transition tomorrow to more renewables. We understand that the earth is changing, the climate is warming, all of that. Um, but it needs to be a measured thought out process. We're very concerned that if we just turn the light switch off up here in Alaska and switch from oil and gas over to renewables, that our 200 plus native communities that are reliant on diesel generators that are essentially on microgrids, they're just not going to be able to step up fast enough for these renewable opportunities. They are also very expensive. We're not sure how they're going to be funded out in extremely remote areas of our state where it's hard to get federal resources um, on the ground as it is. Thank you so much. That was really helpful. I appreciate that. You're welcome. So I'm going to ask kind of a, a broad question. I'm, I'm hoping everyone can maybe jump in on this one. And it's it's I think it's a natural follow-on. I'm going to kind of put the... Um, put some focus on the Bureau of Land Management and the Bureau of Ocean Energy Management and ask how they, and of course the department, um, can be a better partner uh, with tribes during this review, um, certainly in future decision-making processes on federal oil and gas development, but under the self-governance policy. So if any, we'd like to be sure we are thinking about that as well. Yes, I, I would uh, like to uh, jump in on this question. Thank you. That that's a, a critically important uh, question, and it's it's also important for uh, everyone to understand that we have uh, sacred sites. We have places where uh, we we go to practice our ceremonies and express our our cultures. Those are extremely important uh, to tribal nations. Uh, those are the the places where we draw on our strength, our resilience, and, and our resolve. And it's going to be very important uh, moving forward in looking through a self-governance lens that when we look at a, a piece of land that for some it may look like a, a sacred site and have certain characteristics, but we have traditional and immense um, ecological knowledge that goes back uh, for millennia from when time began. That is rich and valuable. And so in our relationship and in uh, the self-governance um, lens, it's, it's so very important to understand those resources from our perspective and more than just land, but truly the, the strength and the power that lies uh, within our sacred sites and our traditional ecological knowledge. Because for us to solve these challenges, we have to consider all sources of knowledge. And we have an incredible brain trust with Indian country. But in, in that respect, I think uh, that's one way that uh, relations can be improved through the self-governance process. Yeah, go, go right ahead. Thanks. Um, it would be helpful in our point of view if there was a little bit more back and forth in terms of consultation. Right now, um, we have to hunt down Dear Tribal Leader letters. We're not sure where they're published all the time. We know that legally they have to be in the Federal Register, but that thing is a mammoth of a document to be combing through every day. Um, and then when the consultation happens, it's for a short amount of time. Um, our tribes have a limited window to present. There's not a lot of back and forth and follow-up. And then a rule will get released. We're then supposed to go through the same process again of hunting it down, um, appearing for a couple hours. And in Alaska, there's 229 tribes. You know, there's the same number of native corporations up here. So having just three consultations countrywide, limiting one to Alaska, is, is really a disservice to the input that we hope to provide throughout this process and other processes as well involving the, um, the oil and gas and uh, 
plan through executive order um, 14008. So if, if we could have a little bit more um, dialogue in, in general, we would really appreciate appreciate that. And the last thing I'll add is um, please come to us. Let us be your host when you have these um, issues and let us show you our lands. Don't necessarily um, just rely on what private industry or environmental groups are saying. We want to be the ones to take you and to show you. Um, and lastly, in Alaska, that means you're going to have to stay probably a week or so because it's going to take you a day to get here, um, a day to adjust up in Anchorage, and then we got to get out to the bush. We, we need we need to travel. Um, if you put Alaska over the lower 48, we would span from Florida to California all the way up into the Dakotas. So it takes time to see what you need to see up here. And we got to get you out of Anchorage, Fairbanks, and Juneau to do that. Thank you. Thank you, Nicole. And I just want to uh, appreciate uh, the invitation to all of us uh, to get to Alaska. And also wanted to say we really appreciate to you. As you know, we're reviewing our consultation policy as well. So these very specific suggestions uh, are going to be critically important for us in, in that vein. And we'll be um, you know, going back and, and talking more with Brian Newland, who I think all of you know. And um, so anyway, we're, we're committed to getting better um, and doing better. So thank you for hitting on that. And Mario? Yes. Um, so we're going to pick on BIA because they're not here. Um, I guess they talk about self-governance. Um, just want to uh, uh, kind of uh, focus the microscope. We had a Section 106 National Historic Preservation Act uh, tribal uh, uh, meeting, and it was there to talk about the, the stipulations of the, a programmatic agreement within the greater Chaco landscape. Very important, you know, to the nexus of tribal government, tribal sovereignty and sacred sites and sacred site protection. And it would seem like the whole process was being rammed down our throats. And it was, I got very abrasive in those meetings, um, even to the point where the Naval Area Director then said, oh, they can show up at four, uh, while a global pandemic is raging, oh, they can show up, they'll, they'll find a workaround. I go outside, I stand, I stand on top of a hill, and I'm okay. Uh, tone deaf, completely disregarding all sense of respect for the, the tribes there. Uh, individual need a lot tease, you know, it, that's our trustees saying that to us, and I'm really getting worked up in these meetings. Um, and out of just complete disrespect to all of the, you know, the typos that are in the room also. Um, not only that, but then having these meetings, you know, hundreds of miles away, in, uh, in population centers way away from Chaco itself and away from the communities. And so if you're gonna have, in order to, to be better and how can they be better partners is that they have to be down in the community and put time and effort into those communities and to really see, be at a, at a meeting place and say, we we want to hear what you are thinking and uh, let's, and then let's, that's what I want to say right off the back. It just jumps out clearly, and I want to highlight that for the group. And so somehow the Farming and Indian Minerals Office is a, is a special office that's in there that has to deal with minerals and the Department of Interior. Um, and because I say all of this is that the BIA uh, specialist is doing the environmental justice analysis. And like, is he trained? Does he know what, how to do all of this? Um, so there'd be better, there has to be the left hand talking with the right. Uh, I don't know how many heads there are at the DOI, 
but you know they all have to sort of come together and talk together and, and there has to be guidance so that's that's one thing so thank you thank you and i just i want to say that to my surprise i feel like we were you know just getting into some good back and forth but i am told with a note that we're at the end of time for this panel so um um i i do again just want to appreciate so much um all of you taking the time to be here with us i think that the sort of really thoughtful and specific um, recommendations and advice you've given us are exactly what we were looking for today. So I just, I appreciate how much time I know you must have put into thinking about what you, you know, what, what it would be good for us to hear. So uh, just thank you again. Yeah, Quill, thank you. Thank you very much, Quayana. Thank you to our indigenous experts. We'll now return you back to the audience and we will welcome our next group of experts, which is our industry experts. That includes Wendy Kirchhoff, the Vice President of Regulatory Policy for American Exploration and Production Council, Eric Melito, who is the President of the National Ocean Industries Association, and Frank Macchiarola, the Senior Vice President for Policy, Economics and Regulatory Affairs for the American Petroleum Institute. Wendy, if you can turn your camera on. Hello, everyone. Hi, Wendy, go ahead. Great. So I respectfully address this panel today on behalf of the American Exploration and Production Council. We are a national trade that represents America's largest onshore independent oil and natural gas exploration and production companies. We appreciate this opportunity to offer the perspective of operators who take on the risk and investment to produce these essential taxpayer-owned resources. Some of our members also operate on tribal and allottee lands where they engage in responsible development. And we do hope that BLM carefully understands our trust responsibility and consultation requirements to these energy producing tribes. As we've just heard, the agency's programs may unduly impact mineral development um, on, in, in Indian country that BLM oversees. Our companies are highly conscientious about working with and listening to the communities and the people in the places where we operate. What we often hear from families and businesses in these communities near federal oil and gas development is that they depend upon the good paying jobs and local commerce that development brings, often in America's remote and rural areas. People in these towns are concerned that without these projects, their communities would severely suffer. They share fears that with the loss of these jobs and business activity, their towns would dry up as there are no replacement jobs locally waiting for them. Cutting oil and gas production on federal lands does not provide climate benefit as production will likely just shift elsewhere, but it will take good paying jobs from these people and from these communities. The, res the responsible development of federal minerals, a fair return to the taxpayer and issues like climate change are important conversations to have. And AXPC does wanna be a part of those conversations. But as policy changes are considered, it's important that we take care to protect these people and their livelihoods who may otherwise be disproportionately impacted. As the agency knows well, and as Director Culver unpacked very thoroughly, development on federal lands requires substantial analysis throughout what is a lengthy and complicated process. Before acreage is leased and throughout the process, BLM undertakes multiple steps to ensure environmental protections are in place, 
the public is consulted and appropriate conditions are applied. DOI historically has acknowledged that more time and capital is needed to drill on federal land and took this into account in the development of these terms. A lease listed as non-producing does not mean that progress is lagging or absent on that leasehold. The process takes time and it offers no guarantees, meaning not every lease contains recoverable reserves and it takes time to figure that out. Interior statistics show that since 2009, there has been a steady trend of less on federal acreage being leased, but also more of those leases being held by production. In other words, through innovation and efficiency, operators are producing much more with far less acreage and with less surface impacts as well. Revenues have also increased substantially, providing billions in benefits to the American people. In 2019 alone, onshore revenues totaled over 4.2 billion, not only in royalties, but nearly a third is comprised of bonuses, interest payments, fees, and rentals paid regardless of whether there is production. Disbursements go primarily to states and local communities. And as mentioned earlier, these operations support hundreds of thousands of American jobs and millions to local businesses and communities as a result of those jobs and expenses needed to support operations. Everything from local diners to hotels to grocery stores. DOI has long recognized these realities in its management of the federal oil and gas program, which is proven essential to our country. The development of minerals also has contributed positively to the U.S. response to climate change through emission reduction on federal lands and by supporting the increased use of natural gas. According to a 2018 USGS study, the extraction of oil and natural gas from federal lands accounts for just 0.6% of the total U.S. greenhouse gas emissions, an intensity that is proportionately much less than the energy and economic value these activities provide. Research points to the role that responsible development of federal lands can play as part of the broader solution, whereas stopping this development merely shifts production elsewhere and does nothing to reduce global emissions. The U.S. can continue to lead climate solutions through technology, innovation, and the promotion of the global use of U.S.-produced natural gas. AXPC members are proud to cultivate energy from federal resources and do not take lightly our commitment to the communities where we operate, nor our responsibility to steward those lands in our care. We appreciate the opportunity to provide this testimony. We will also provide you with written comments to better address these issues and aid in your work. We stand ready to work with the department on its review of this program. Thank you. Thank you, Wendy. You can please turn your camera off. And now I will turn it over to Eric Molito. He's the president of the National Ocean Industries Association. Eric? Yeah, I'm trying to share my screen. I have a presentation. Does uh, somebody have, oh, there we go. Having technical difficulties, my. Apologies. Eric, 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 we can't see your screen, but we have your presentation and we will run your PowerPoint. So oh, all you okay. have to do is ask for next slide, next slide, next slide. Okay. Okay. I was informed differently. Let's, hey, let's, go, ahead, let's go ahead and read. Let's reset your five minutes, please. Fluid <laughs> card. Okay. Thank you all. Sorry. Apologies. Uh, thank you and good afternoon. My name is Companies that have built out the offshore oil and gas industry in the Gulf of Mexico are many of the same companies in the supply chain that are poised, planned, planning, and already participating in the build-out of the emerging U.S. offshore wind sector. Next slide, please. 
Our industry has been investing heavily in renewables, in low carbon solutions, and advancing technologies to continue to reduce emissions. Uh, but we recognize that moving forward, the global economy is going to rely upon all sources of energy, including oil and natural gas, really for decades to come, so that the global society can maintain a high standard of living. Uh, it is through energy like oil and gas that we're able to lift society um, from the depths of poverty and reduce hunger and, and raise levels of education and health care. And when we, when we look at U.S. policy and the federal leasing program, the offshore oil and gas federal leasing program really does stand out as part of the solution that can help us balance the need for energy security, national security, addressing climate change, job growth, economic growth, and safeguarding the environment. Next slide, please. And the Gulf of Mexico has long been a prolific uh, energy producing region, and it serves as that today. The Gulf of Mexico remains one of the top energy producing regions in the world. Uh, our industry supports more than 300,000 jobs. Many of them are concentrated along the Gulf Coast, but we support uh, employees and companies in every state uh, in the nation. And these are high paying jobs. Many of these workers uh, involved in offshore oil and gas work, uh, they make more than 80,000, more than 100,000, sometimes 150,000 a year for blue collar jobs. Uh, and, and there are all sorts of companies throughout the supply chain. Our membership uh, includes family owned businesses, small businesses, uh, businesses owned by African-Americans. We have a company that is owned by a tribal nation that is a leaseholder. We have uh, companies that uh, are owned by Native Americans uh, and, and among others. Uh, in addition, uh, Amanda talked about the, the, the uh, director left and talked about the money flowing into the federal government. Uh, the oil and gas industry in the offshore has uh, generated more than $120 billion over the past 20 years in the form of bonus bids, royalties, and rentals. And we fund more than $350 million a year for the Go Mesa revenue sharing, the money that goes to the Gulf Coast states uh, for the purpose of coastal resiliency, uh, wetlands restoration, money that's vital, vital to addressing uh, the impacts of climate change. Next slide, please. In addition to the economic benefits, when recognizing that the global society will continue to rely on oil and gas, it's important to look at uh, the carbon footprint of the different producing regions. And the data continues to show that the offshore uh, oil and gas producing region uh, has the lowest carbon barrels. This is due to the scale, the level of investment, uh, the level of innovation, the continuous advancement of technology to reduce emissions, uh, the tight controls on methane from both a regulatory and an operational approach. Next slide, please. This has been validated uh, in the course of developing the five-year program that we're in. As part of that robust analysis uh, during the Obama administration back in 2016, an analysis was completed of the GHG emissions impact from the leasing program. And the conclusion was GHG emissions would be higher if BOEM were to have no lease sales. This is due from uh, because of substitutions that would occur from in international sources that would be more carbon intensive and also the added emissions that would come from having to ship and transport those supplies uh, from foreign sources. Next slide, please. Our industry is also uh, the funder of and, and we fund virtually all of the money that goes into the Land and Water Conservation Fund close to $4 billion, covering more than 40,000 projects. This is important funding for protection of public lands and waters and conservation programs. Next slide, please. As part of this program, Congress created in 2014, the Outdoor Recreation Legacy Partnership Program. Uh, this provides funding to build 
rebuild and repair parks in economically distressed urban neighborhoods. So it is through offshore oil and gas revenues that we've, we've been able to help disadvantaged communities, more than 50 of them, um, have access to outdoor recreation programs like parks. Um, right here, you can see uh, Jesse Allen Park in Newark. Other cities that have gotten this funding include Milwaukee and Philadelphia. So this is a region that is helping uh, address even urban communities' needs. Next slide, please. Uh, U.S. offshore oil and gas is also subject to among the most stringent oversight and regulation in the world. Over the past 10 plus years, uh, the, the agencies have ramped up the regulations, improved the regulations to make sure we're in the best position possible to make sure we can prevent incidents from occurring. Next slide, please. This includes uh, the requirement for companies to access to these technologies you see. Uh, this is HWCG and MWCC. Companies must have access to these uh, multi-million dollar, in this case, these te technologies have cost more than a billion dollars. You must have access to that before you can operate so that we can safeguard the marine environment. Next slide, please. The Rigs to Reef program has been very successful in, in, in creating and supporting flourishing marine ecosystems. These facilities also can be multi-purposed and repurposed moving forward for research and development into new and emerging low carbon technologies. Next slide. I just close by uh, making the point that uh, we understand that the global economy is working together uh, to, to, to move forward and advance uh, the aims of the Paris Climate Agreement. But as we look 10, 20, 30 years into the future, we recognize that we're going to need oil and natural gas. And here in the U.S., we have tremendous benefits flowing from our offshore oil and gas sector. And this sector stands to be the innovator that we can rely upon to help us balance the need for energy security, job growth, and moving forward toward a lower carbon society. Thank you very much. Thank you, Eric. I will now turn it over to Frank Macchiarola, the Senior Vice President for Policy, Economics, and Regulatory Affairs for the American Petroleum Institute. Frank, can you please turn your camera on? Thank you. Good afternoon. My name is Frank Macchiarola. I'm Senior Vice President of Policy, Economics, and Regulatory Affairs at the American Petroleum Institute, the National Trade Association representing all aspects of the oil and gas industry. The United States is now the global leader in both energy production and emissions reductions due in large part to the innovation and commitment of the oil and gas industry. For many years, we've worked collaboratively with the Department of the Interior to help ensure the continued safety of industry workers and the protection of the environment. And we look forward to continuing this partnership as you undertake this evaluation of the oil and gas leasing program. We understand the importance of this review and we appreciate your consultation with us in this process. Today, I will address three main points. First, oil and natural gas leasing on federal lands and waters provides a broad range of benefits to the American people, and a ban on leasing would have harmful consequences. Second, the oil and natural gas industry is part of the solution in reducing greenhouse gas emissions. In fact, just today, API announced a five-point climate action plan to address the risks of climate change while continuing to meet the growing demand for energy. And third, I'll refute claims that the industry is stockpiling leasing and permitting and permits. First, the oil and gas industry is essential to America's post-pandemic recovery and long-term economic growth. 
Oil and natural gas development on federal lands and waters provides affordable and reliable and cleaner energy, supports millions of good paying jobs, provides billions of dollars to federal and state governments, and supports conservation efforts across the country. In 2019 alone, the LWCF, which is funded almost entirely by offshore oil and gas revenues, distributed over $227 million across the country for outdoor recreation and conservation efforts. Policies aimed at slowing or stopping oil and natural gas production also prove harmful to our national security. U.S. energy demand is likely to continue to rise, and it's vital that the energy we use is produced right here at home. We urge you to expedite this review. A study we commissioned found that a long-term leasing and development ban could result in more than 2 million additional barrels of oil per day being imported to meet energy needs and nearly 1 million American jobs lost. Second, we continue to support the Biden administration's climate goals, and we can do that without banning or significantly curtailing oil and gas development. From 2005 to 2020, EIA reports that energy-related CO2 emissions in the U.S. declined by more than 23%. With smart policies, we can help other countries meet their environmental goals, such as promoting exports of U.S. LNG. But we can only do it if we utilize our own resources. The oil and gas industry is investing billions toward new innovative technologies to improve environmental performance and further reduce emissions. This, this includes enhanced monitoring through investments in satellite, drone, and aerial GHG detection technologies. For offshore operations, leak detection measures can include periodic monitoring using optical gas monitoring or other technologies. Because of these efforts, according to USGS, GHG emissions from the production and, and combustion of oil and natural gas from federal lands accounted for less than 10% of total US GHG emissions. Meeting energy demands without production on federal lands and waters only means our imports would increase from countries with weaker environmental standards. It also means we'd be reducing US production of natural gas the single most effective resource in reducing emissions from the electricity sector. Our study found that forcing a decrease in domestic production of natural gas will likely lead to higher GHG emissions, the opposite effect of the administration's stated goal. Third, I wanna clearly state that the industry is not stockpiling leases or permits. Non-producing leases are not inactive. It takes several years of due diligence and sizable investment for a company to analyze the underlying geology, perform the necessary technology and en engineering assessments, and arrange the logistics of exploration and development projects before a company can determine if a lease contains commercial quantities of oil and natural gas. There's no guarantee that all leases will eventually be productive, in the meantime, the U.S. benefits significantly from companies taking a chance by acquiring leases in that the government receives large amounts from lease sale bonuses and annual rentals. Thank you for the opportunity to participate in today's discussion. We look forward to continuing our work together with DOI as you undertake this important review. Thank you. Thank you, Frank. And now we'll have our 10-minute Q&A session with our industry experts and our Department of Interior leaders. So could I ask uh, Frank and Eric and Wendy to all turn their cameras on? Thank you.
Great. This is Laura Davis again. I want to say thanks to you all. Appreciation again that you would take the time to join us this afternoon. And we're going to try and do the same kind of one by one, but have it be a little bit give and take as well. So it's I think it's it's tough to achieve in 10 minutes, but we're going to try again. Um, and so I'm, I'll just start with 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 Wendy. And you, you commented that the independent oil and, and gas producers are um, committed to improving environmental performance and you know, appreciate that. Um, so I think specifically, if you could talk to us about um, best practices that we should be talking to you about or considering during our review that, you know, mitigate climate and other um, environmental impacts of oil and gas development, including, um, you know, methane reduction. I think a couple of folks have mentioned that um, you know, water contamination concerns. Can you just talk to us a little bit more specifically about best practices um, to inform our thinking as we're undertaking this review? Sure, sure. Thank you for the question. So, you know, I think uh, a lot of um, with communities directly impact um, will certainly work to get information directly to you. Uh, our problem with that is that we certainly gave information, but we didn't get many solutions. So, you know, um, if you want to find a way to communicate with us, I believe that that uh, this particular process that already exists within the federal government being pro being um, uh, provided um, to communities from the Department of Interior would be uh, most helpful. Um, and I think that having discussions with um, other departments like EPA that started MEJAC and um, all of these other things, the interagency work groups, I think that um, not starting from scratch, keeping what works and what's good and moving from there is probably the best approach. That would be my suggestion. Yes. Um, I would I would give snaps to that, and um, I would say um, I would, and I I really think that that kind of says it all because th those are kind of tried and true um, uh, methodologies that that um, Dr. Wright has actually experienced. So I think that's the best. Uh, that's, that's the Good, bad, and the ugly, all of it. I have experienced. <laughs> And I, uh, one of the things that I've been thinking about with this situation, especially even in the context, or maybe especially in the context of COVID-19, is uh, as we've been, one of the, on one hand, COVID-19 has opened for us the ability for, for folks to engage in our trainings and meetings and so forth because of the virtual reality, because it, we have, so when we have these training, when we did this uh, equity and emergency management training, Normally we would get maybe 60 people at the, at the training from a whole region. And our first training, we had 300 people from Florida alone <laughs> register, 304 people. And it was because of that access. But at the same time, one of the things that we're, we've been thinking about with this Justice 40 conversation is the folks who are not just on the margins, but who aren't even on the map. Like, how do we make sure that we are really reaching folks that are way, way out there. And, um, and, and on one hand, yes, like groups like the NAACP with 2200 branches and chapters, you know, can certainly be a facilitator. 
I would definitely point to to church groups because in some of those places, the only thing that's there might be a church um, in terms of like an institution of, of any sort that would be a, a handhold. But I would also say that this is where the need for multi-solving and intersectionality needs to happen because then we need to be thinking about broadband. Like how do we get broadband out to everyone so that, um, because it's not gonna be possible for, I mean, talk about big government <laughs> to be the size that it needs to be to reach the folks who are in the farthest reaches isn't really, isn't really <clears throat> feasible. But so what are, what are the ways that we're gonna be able to, to, to pave those pathways? I think we really need to think hard about that, about folks who are really in deep rural areas who are some of the folks who are the most impacted in some ways, but who aren't as reachable. So that's the only other thing I would add to mm -hmm. what Dr. Wright said. That's, that's a helpful point, especially for the department. We're so far flung. Maite? Uh, great question, Laura. And I absolutely agree uh, with Dr. Wright and Ms. Patterson uh, with, what, with what's been said. And I think that at this time, in uh, where we are now, there's really no excuse anymore to not reach the hardest to reach communities. There are organizations like ours who have that reach. Um, uh, Ms. Patterson mentioned churches. She mentioned um, some great examples. We have those connections. We can help you. We want to help you. Uh, but in addition, so maintaining a strong relationship and good communications with our organization can help you communicate with the community that are the hardest to reach and publicize opportunities to comment and proactively invite us, um, invite our experience as well as you do so uh, an insight. But other ideas um, also are, are making sure that there's translation services uh, when needed, when requested, understanding that audience, we can help you and uh, as you build that relationship, understand the audience. Uh, think of the UN and how the UN addresses language. And this is what's needed in our, our country as it's changed over time. And it's not, uh, it, you know, government uh, um, has this ability and you can also have this ability. Extending comment periods is important as well. And expanding public notice across all forms of media and multiple languages. Uh, speaking of languages, there are... There is ethnic media. There is uh, media in, in different cultures, different uh, languages. That's very important to take into consideration. And then holding open public forums uh, in communities who live near potential development, making sure that um, the message gets to them as well. Great. Thank you so much. Now, I see that Connie has magically appeared, which means that we are um, somehow, surprisingly, um, out of time, I do want to um, give a, a special snap to Dr. Wright. I had not thought of FACA as sort of a, a sort of a convening way to maybe get at this. So that is definitely kind of a take home um, to do for us to see if um, we could figure out um, how to make that work for these really hard issues that we're not so great at tackling. I appreciate all of your time. I know I've said this to everybody. It's a lot to ask you to take a chunk out of your day to come and be with us. And we're very grateful. And we're going to send your regards to Secretary Holland. Please. Yes. We're very excited. <laughs> we are too. <laughs> we're very excited. Yes, we are. So thank you.
Well, thank you thank to you our all. experts. And uh, we'll be moving on to our next group, okay. uh, which will be our academic experts. And that will include Mark Squillichi from the Raphael J. Moses Professor of Law, University of Colorado Law School, Getches Wilkinson Center. Dr. David Yaskowitz, Senior Executive Director from the Hart Research Institute for the Gulf of Mexico Studies at Texas A&M Corpus Christi. And Brian Prest, a fellow from the Resources for the Future. Uh, first up, we'll turn it over to Mark Squillichi. Hello, um, and thank you so much for organizing this uh, important forum a lot of important issues I think that we are able to discuss and, and there have been some great ideas today and I'm grateful for the opportunity both to hear from the other panelists and also to participate myself. Um, before I begin, I just want to acknowledge uh, something that uh, Secretary Holland mentioned at the beginning, which, which is just that we are probably going to be living with oil and gas development for the foreseeable future. But I think what she also recognized is that we need to be thinking about how we're going to ratchet down oil and gas development in light of climate change and the concerns that that has raised for us. And, and I think that really should be what informs the Interior Department as they are uh, considering their policies. Uh, you know, if you think about what happened in the coal industry, it was quite predictable that coal was going to decline as rapidly as, as it did. And yet no one really took responsibility for trying to manage that decline in a kind of methodical and responsible way. And I think the same kind of writing is on the wall a bit for the oil and gas industry. We're seeing this big movement toward electrification uh, that is likely to affect uh, oil prices in particular going forward. And it's just important that we be thinking strategically about how to manage this decline in a way that I think is, is most responsible. I want to cover a lot of different topics today in my brief time. I'm already only at three and a half minutes now, but let me just real briefly talk about rental fees, um, royalties, minimum bids, environmental protection, and bonding. And then I'm hoping at the end that Laura will ask the question that she's been asking most of the panelists that, that I'd like to, uh, to take a crack at. So first, let me just talk about uh, rentals. Um, you know, we we basically, as Nada pointed this out in, in the beginning, you know, we charge a dollar fifty, excuse me, two dollars uh, for um, um, the, the five to six to ten years, one a dollar fifty for the first five years of a rental fee. And what that does really is encourage speculation. I think it's highly problematic to have rental fees that are so low. If we increase rental fees to something like ten dollars uh, an acre. Um, we would really, I think, see far less leasing going on, but the revenues would likely remain as high or maybe even higher than they are now. I don't think we'd need to even worry about um, distinguishing between competitive and non-competitive leases as long as we were charging a, a sufficient uh, fee. And I would also say that what we ought to do is have an escalating rental fee. So it might be $10 for the first three years, but you'd ratchet that up over time again, to discourage companies from holding on to leases that they're not likely to develop. If they don't develop them, at least more revenues would be coming into the, for, to the government. I think that would be a way to sort of address some of the problems that we have right now with all of these stale leases on the public lands. Regarding royalties, I would just remind everybody about a 2017 GAO report on royalties. The GAO looked at three different royalty increase rates, 16.67%. 18.75 and 22.5. And their conclusion was that, that a modest um, 
there, there would probably be a modest decline in, in the amount of leasing that happened with increased royalty rates, but that would be more than made up for in terms of revenues because of the higher uh, kinds of royalty rates. And it seems to me that uh, the BLM could easily justify a 20 percent uh, royalty rate on federal lands. I know there are more complicated formulas. I think Brian may be talking about some of that in his talk, so I'll just leave that there. Um, regarding minimum bids, um, currently, you know, it's $2 an acre. I think you could um, easily increase that maybe to as much as $100 an acre for a minimum bid. Again, trying to discourage speculation would be the key here, and we wouldn't really have people who weren't interested in, in not um, not developing their, their resources. On the environmental side, I'd really like to see much more proactive use of lease stipulations and conditions uh, on APDs. Just a quick example, um, you're all familiar with the recent decision from the Wyoming District Court striking down the BLM methane capture rule, but I see no reason why the BLM couldn't impose a similar condition on a lease or on a, an APD, and that would be one way to sort of avoid the problem that uh, the court created uh, in that decision. I think it likely would be reversed, or at least it may very well be reversed on appeal, but um, this would be another strategy uh, for addressing that problem. Finally, on bonding, um, I, it seems that the BLM is uh, moving uh, toward fixing its bonding problem. Uh, again, a GAO report from 2019 recommended that the BLM increase its bonding amounts. Good idea. I hope you're going in that direction. It seems like you are. I just want to point out, though, again, um, the problems that we've had in the coal industry with respect to bonding. We have great provisions on bonding in the Surface Mining Control and Reclamation Act. They all not have not always worked out as well as we had hoped, partly because of the bankruptcies and all these sort of dislocations that have occurred in the coal industry. And we could very well see something like that in the oil and gas industry as well. So um, I'm out of time. I just want to thank again the uh, BLM and, and the Interior Department for hosting this uh, forum. Uh, I look forward to answering some of your questions. Thank you. Thank you, Mark. And now I'll turn it over to Dr. David Yaskowitz, the Senior Executive Director from Heart Research Institute for Gulf of Mexico Studies, Texas A&M, Corpus Christi. Good afternoon. Thank you very much for inviting me to be here today. Uh, I want to focus my comments today more on process and engagement. Um, and I'd like to have that focus really be on the coastal and offshore areas primarily, but not exclusively, uh, drawing on my experience in the Gulf of Mexico. As you have probably heard, the Gulf of Mexico is called United States Energy Coast. In fact, I can look out my window right now and see not only oil and gas platforms, the port of Corpus Christi, which might be called America's energy port, the service industries that support offshore operations, but also one of the largest installations of wind energy in the country, in addition to one of the most productive estuaries and the birdiest city in the country. Now, though it may sound like it, I'm not here on behalf of the Chamber of Commerce. I use this example to illustrate the complex integration that our environment and natural resources have with our coastal communities and economies. The ocean and Great Lakes economy contributed over $306 billion to the U.S. economy and employed over 3.3 million people in 2017, as calculated by NOAA's Economics National Ocean Watch program. It's safe to say that at least 300,000 of those individuals work directly in the offshore energy industry, and most likely much more than that. <clears throat> 
However, these coastal communities where people live and work, such as myself, are on the front lines of the impacts from climate change. Rising sea levels, more intensive storms, and in the case of Houston-Galveston metropolitan area, five 500-year floods in the past six years. So is there a model or models for a path forward that consider, considers the science of climate change, the impacts of policy and management decisions on the environment and economies and communities and can show success of implementation? I think there's two relevant examples for that in what we're discussing here today. The first is the extremely successful regional ocean partnership, the Gulf of Mexico Alliance, as an example. It was established in 2004 by the Gulf state governors in response to President Bush's ocean, ocean Action Plan. It formed as a state-led effort and significant and important partnerships with the federal agencies, industry, environmental NGOs, and academic science community. The success of the alliance has stemmed from the willingness to work together to address the most pressing issues around community resilience, marine debris, wildlife, fisheries, habitat management, just to name a few of those issues. The Gulf of Mexico Alliance is not unique, though. There are other regional ocean partnerships, such as the Northeast Regional Ocean Council, Mid-Atlantic Council, and West Coast Alliance. These partnerships provide the opportunity to address these important issues, such as climate change and energy development, in a holistic manner that engages the broadest set of stakeholders immediately, built in, ready to go. My second example, is the Flower Garden Banks National Marine Sanctuary, 100 nautical miles offshore from Galveston. From its beginnings, the exploration, establishment, and early success of the sanctuary happened because of the cooperation between the same type of stakeholders that made the Gulf Alliance and regional ocean partnerships so successful with energy development and commercial fishing activities surrounding the sanctuary, it has flourished. Through its sanctuary, advisory council, agencies, industry, environmental NGOs, and academia are at the table to do the heavy lifting of being partners for management of the sanctuary, but also expansion. In fact, the model proved itself successful again when the sanctuary was recently expanded to almost three times its previous size. All of this is to highlight the positive impact that a thoughtful, inclusive process with all stakeholders can result in lasting and meaningful solutions to our most pressing environmental, economic, and social issues. It's not easy, it's very challenging, it can be very messy, but the payoff is just not to sustain but enhance the natural environment, our communities and economies is significant. In closing, I would encourage the Department of Interior and the larger federal family as it moves down the path to address climate change and the shared management of our environmental and natural resources to one, build even stronger relationships with the regional ocean partnerships and similar entities that can help chart and support a plan that is equitable, efficient, and will last. And second, continue to invest, but at a greater rate in understanding the complex and integrated nature of our coastal communities and our natural resources through the environmental studies program of BOEM as an example. Thank you. Thank you, Brian. And now we will have a 10 minute Q&A discussion with our panelists and interior leaders. You may all turn your cameras back on. That would be, um, yes, everyone. Oh, wait a minute, I'm sorry. I, I, yeah, I don't believe Brian's had a chance. <laughs> I'm sorry, I left, I left off uh, um, Mr. Prest. Uh, so Brian <laughs> Prest, it's, I'm gonna turn it over to you and ask the other folks to turn their cameras off for a second. Um, 
So Brian Prest is the, um, I'm gonna let you introduce yourself. Okay, <laughs> thank you. Uh, yes, actually, so, so thank you for having me. Um, uh, I really appreciate the opportunity to be here today at the forum, I think it's really important. Uh, so my name is Brian Prest, I'm an economist and a fellow at Resources for the Future. Uh, RFF is an independent, uh, nonpartisan, nonprofit research in institution in Washington, D.C. And our mission is to improve environmental, energy, and natural resource decisions through impartial economic research and policy engagement. Uh, the institution is committed to being the most widely trusted source of research insights and policy solutions leading to a healthy environment and a thriving economy. I'll note that uh, while research, RFF researchers are encouraged to offer their expertise to inform policy decisions, the views expressed here are my own and may differ from those of other RFF experts, its officers, or its directors. And RFF does not take positions on specific legislative proposals. Uh, today, I'll provide an economist perspective on a specific element of Executive Order 14008. Uh, that is the adjustment of federal oil and gas royalties to, quote, account for corresponding climate costs, end quote. And so just to be clear, my remarks consider accounting for all climate costs, both upstream during production and downstream during fuel use, including combustion of fuels. So many of the existing rules for uh, federal oil and gas leasing were established more than a century ago, well before the impacts of CO2 emissions were widely recognized as an important policy issue. Uh, to address that issue, economists overwhelmingly support policies such as economy-wide carbon pricing that places a fee on every ton of carbon emitted. Uh, and in fact, I'm happy to see today that uh, this kind of policy was endorsed by AP, API in their five-point plan. Um, in context of uh, federal leasing, an analogous policy would be a carbon fee embedded in oil and gas leases, perhaps based on the social cost of carbon. So the idea is that this would account for and in, uh, internalize climate externalities and thereby reduce emissions. Uh, this is not a new idea. Uh, the 2017, in 2017, the Interior Scoping Report for, for uh, coal leasing reform listed royalty increases or adders as a top option for achieving both a fair return and accounting for greenhouse gas emissions. The policy is also grounded firmly in more than a century of economics, going back to Pagu in 1924. Uh, economics is very clear on this point. Maximizing economic efficiency requires externalities like pollution to be accounted for through a fee or comparable regulation. Uh, this is true even if the policy can only be applied to one subsector, such as federal lands, but not state or private. However, policies that increase the cost of operating on federal lands will result in some production shifting to state, private, and foreign producers. This is known as leakage, and it's a very real drawback of policies with limited coverage. As I already mentioned, uh, an ideal policy would uh, involve uh, an economy-wide price, in which case uh, international leakage could be addressed through a border tax adjustment along the lines developed by my RFF colleagues, Brian Flannery and Jan Mares. Still, uh, leakage is not one for one, and economic efficiency requires a fee at an appropriate level. With leakage, the optimal fee is simply lower than it would otherwise be. The relative carbon intensity of fuels that replace federal production should also be taken account into in this adjustment. So the question is not whether there should be a fee, but what is the right level of the fee? A key economic principle underlying good policy is the need to balance benefits and costs. From an economic perspective, the climate benefits are the value of reduced emissions, uh, typically measured by the social cost of carbon. Uh, policies that have leakage merit a somewhat smaller, but nonetheless substantial fee reflecting climate impacts because a ton of emissions uh, reduced on cut from covered sources, federal lands, translates to less than a ton reduced globally after accounting for offsetting increases in production elsewhere. Uh, while I focus on the climate impacts, there's another motivation for raising royalty rates, and that's the revenues they generate. 
And in fact, the law explicitly states that the public should receive fair market value for resources extracted from public lands, and there's substantial evidence uh, that current rates are below that level. Uh, further, because half of royalties uh, from onshore production are shared with the producing state, these revenues can help support state and local budgets during the energy transition. Uh, in a recent paper, my co-author James Stock and I calculated optimal carbon fees in various scenarios, accounting for that leakage. Uh, the different scenarios depend on what the policymaker's goal is, such as maximizing revenues or economic efficiency, depends on the value of the social cost of carbon, and depends on the chosen policy levers, such as royalty rates in terms of a percent uh, as is customary versus uh, fees in terms of dollars per ton of emissions. Uh, you can find all the detailed numbers in our paper, and I encourage you to take a closer look at these since I just don't have sufficient time to share them with you right now. Uh, but you'll find that the results reveal that there are multiple, not just one, but multiple policy approaches that can be used to reduce emissions, some by tens of millions of tons of CO2 annually. At the same time, these measures can generate billions of dollars every year to support local communities. Any one of these approaches we evaluated could strike a balance between the two extremes of doing nothing and completely shutting down federal leasing. Uh, and this middle path of implementing carbon fees to reflect climate externalities can be an economically efficient approach to leasing reform and I'd be pleased to continue to aid in assessing the merits of these different policy options. So thank you again for this opportunity to appear before you today, and I look forward to our discussion. Thank you, Brian. And we will now have a 10-minute Q&A discussion with our panelists and interior leaders. So um, Mark and David, if you can turn your cameras back on. Thank you. Where is he? Or is it on my screen that I just can't see? There he is. Okay. Good, good. Okay, so I want to acknowledge, um, just mindful and being respectful of folks' time, that we are behind. Um, nonetheless, we are determined to get a round of questions in with you. So we're going to go and do that and uh, you know, appreciate your, your sticking with us if you can. So um, I first wanted to start by um, dating both myself and Mark and admitting that we um, both served together under Bruce Babbitt in the interior department a few <laughs> years ago. Um, so it's nice to be together on the screen. And I think you know, obviously you've done just really deep thinking about land use in the West and um, you know, greenhouse gas emissions from the oil and gas program. And I think um, as we're going through this comprehensive review, sharing any specific thoughts you have about how we should be looking at the, um, you know, the NEPA review process in particular with regard to how we do our permitting. And if there's anything, you were quite specific um, in your presentation, but if there's any elaboration you wanted to provide on any of those points, um, you know, with regard to um, you know, execution, that would be welcome as well. Sure. Um, thanks so much, Laura. And yes, nice to see you again. Um, I, let me let me sort of take the opportunity to address the issue that I kind of want to address, and I'm afraid I might not get a chance to. And it, I think, to some extent, builds on what Brian was just talking about in terms of uh, of using sort of uh, economic theory to try to try to uh, capture external external costs. Um, you know, there's a big problem, I think a much bigger problem than has been acknowledged with abandoned oil and gas wells. I think it was mentioned earlier, I think uh, uh, Wendy Kershaw threw out a 50,000 abandoned wells number. Um, that, I think, is what's been reported. Forbes recently did a report suggesting there were 3 million abandoned wells in the United States. 2 million of them are unplugged. And it's a really serious climate problem because many of these wells are leaking methane. And, and causing serious kinds of economic dislocations. And I just wanna throw out this idea, which I think is important, uh, which is essentially having 
the Interior Department, working with EPA and other agencies and with the industry, and ultimately with Congress to maybe adopt something along the lines of the AML program under the Surface Mining Act, the, the Abandoned Mine Land Program. So there's a fee imposed, of course, on coal under the uh, AML program. You, I did a sort of a back of the envelope calculation of this. And, and now we're talking, of course, all oil and gas, not just federal. Um, you could impose a one penny tax on every barrel of oil produced and a penny tax on, on um, a million cubic feet of gas. And you would generate about $80 million a year. You know, so if you went up to five cents, uh, you'd generate $400 million a year. And you're going to have to find some uh, revenue uh, stream to deal with this really overwhelming problem. It's a really serious problem. The good news is it creates lots of jobs. Um, and it does sort of deal with the point Brian was making about capturing some of the external costs. And it, not just for the federal oil and gas, but oil and gas more broadly, which I think would be a good thing. So it's just sort of an, um, you know, a little out of the box idea, but I think it's really worth thinking about ways in which we can deal with this uh, very serious problem. I was encouraged, frankly, by what API said today in terms of their um, interest in addressing climate change, and they hopefully could be an ally in setting up something like this. So that's what I wanted to sort of address. And I love to talk about NEPA at some other point, but let me turn it over to other panelists if I can. Great. Amanda, you want to jump in? I'd be happy to. Thanks everyone for your really thoughtful presentations. Um, I, Professor Yaskowitz, first, I hope I pronounced your name correctly. You can correct me if I'm wrong. I would appreciate that. Um, you know, I, I heard you talk a bit about uh, regional collaboration and the value that that brings um, and the importance of that. So so I guess I, I wanted to ask you to clarify that a little bit more to talk to us about, you know, how how we can really lift up uh, some additional collaboration or really try and focus on that in the context of this review or otherwise and how that could benefit our programs. Right. And my my most direct experience has been with the, the Gulf of Mexico Alliance. <clears throat> and um, of course, the, the various components of DOI have been very much involved in, in the alliance, um, have supported it financially, the various uh, um, priority issue areas, but have also added a lot to the, the management and uh, science discussions that take place there. I think the benefit of the, the regional ocean partnerships is that you you have a uh, a constituency and a stakeholder base already there, you know that that reaches into not only state and other federal agencies, but also, uh, as I said, environmental NGOs, the academic science community, um, local, which I think is really important here, local government officials as well. And so as you move out, as DOI and the other federal family agencies move out on, you know, developing, you know, new rules and new policy, new management actions, engaging that, that community at the beginning and heavily is going to make the uptake of that much easier to go. And, and so I think that's that's the benefit is that relationship is there and, and, and to take advantage of those relationships. Thank you, Professor. That's really helpful. Look forward to more discussion. I'll ask a question to Mr. Prest. Um, 
we did hear some convergence, um, as Professor Scolacci noted, with um, our API representative saying they do support a price on carbon and seem to be some overlap with your ideas about a carbon adder on the royalty rate. Um, and I just wanted to hear a little bit more about how we might calculate that and how, you know, if you think that there's a way to do that in a way that doesn't, um, if, if we're only addressing public lands, how does that work for keeping develop, you know, for supporting development on public land? We've heard some discussion about the cost of development on public lands as well. So how would we structure that in a way that might seem reasonable once we've, once we've got everyone at the table? Yes, uh, so that's a great question. Uh, thank you. Um, so that's something that my co-author, uh, James Stock, and I have thought a lot about recently in that um, you, you know, economics says you need to have some type of price on carbon. Um, if you can't do a price on carbon, you can approximate it uh, by increasing the royalty rate, for example, in a way that uh, approximates it, you know, um, uh, something to a point where it's roughly commensurate. Or you could think about raising the royalty rate uh, to the point that achieves a fair return um, uh, measured by some uh, benchmark, whether it's uh, compared to state and private levels or it's compared to, say, a revenue maximizing rate. And uh, I don't want to get bogged down to technical details. I'd be happy to follow up on that. But we dig into this, uh, into the math in detail in a recent paper. Um, but there's multiple ways uh, you can go about it. Um, I, as I alluded to in my remarks, though, is if you're just focusing on federal lands, you're, you are going to get this leakage problem and that you're not going to get a one-for-one -one reduction um, because you're going to get you know, production popping up on state and private lands and also through imports. And so you need to account for that. And you know, economic theory says that you should adjust the, you know, you shouldn't charge a full, say, social cost of carbon, you should be charging something less. And that can help balance uh, the uh, you know the benefits of production uh, with the emissions reductions and also the revenues generated. All right. Well, once again, we'd love to spend quite a bit more time talking about these issues. They um, are, um, I think, would be are are and hoping to talk more and maybe even see some of your written comments to inform our um, comprehensive review. So I'm going to, I'm going to try and wrap this up and, and um, not take too much time doing it, but thank you all again for taking time out of your day from various places in America that I can, I can see that you're piping in from. That's sort of one of the only values out of um, what has happened with COVID is we've learned we can do things like this and um, bring in more people um, from more places. So, um, so I'm going to try and, um, just do quick summary of takeaways, which is going to be impossible to do. It's been a great conversation. Um, and I really appreciate um, how many folks have offered to work with us and sort of be um, at the table, um, as Wendell put it, going forward. So um, really quickly, I mean, first of all, I wanted to say thanks to the secretary. I know she's not here, but I know we all appreciated that she could take a few moments at the top um, to talk to us um, about these issues. And I just want to affirm that we, her team, were listening, we're committed to being honest and transparent, we're excited to continue this dialogue. And, you know, this the, the pause and the comprehensive review that we're undertaking has given us the space to look at the federal fossil fuel programs, and they really haven't been meaningfully examined in decades, and that, that's important. Um, so, uh, our indigenous speakers, uh, I, I think we heard certainly um, what we know, which is that the department must continue to work to meet our trust and treaty responsibilities and follow principles and the UN Decla Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. 
Um, and we heard a lot about tribal consultation, which, as I said, we're sort of engaging in consultations on consultation right now. So it was really helpful to get a few more details there. Um, and then noting that tribal energy resources um, are going to be uh, important to meeting the energy needs for the nation, not just tribes. Um, the um, industry experts um, noted that their you know, production activity is uh, becoming much more efficient. Um, there are, are fewer uh, impacts on the landscape um, and uh, noted certainly that energy production you know, uh, fosters American energy independence, um, economic success, um, jobs, you know, support in communities. Um, and I think we also heard loud and clear that the um, the oil and gas industry is committed to being a part of the climate solution, um, including a new five-point plan um, from the API, which uh, we'll look forward to reading later. Um, our uh, conservation experts um, talked about um, ways to sort of uh, manage our increased in renewable energy and um, how we make sure that we uh, do that in a way that really gets us exponentially moving forward. Um, talked about how pollution is really harming health uh, and communities. It's harming the climate and that the effects are um, disproportionately on disadvantaged communities, which I think we all know. Um, and then again, just a reminder, you know, clean energy is a, a, a growth economy, and um, we're certainly working towards that end here at Interior. Um, our labor experts were terrific and, um, you know, talked about the importance of being sure that um, we are focused on making sure that good paying jobs for Americans are a key part of what we are doing onshore, offshore, <laughs> renewable, fossil, um, and uh, I think, you know, shared value of supporting workers um, in our decision making with family supporting and well paying union jobs. Um, the, our, our equity experts um, uh, talked again about the fact that oil and gas operations are often cited in uh, communities that are poor, uh, communities of color, and as a result, they're bearing disproportionate impacts on air and water. Um, and they also talked about meeting an EJ review of the federal oil and gas program, um, including suggesting that um, putting together um, a federal advisory committee might be um, an, an interesting and helpful um, and needed way um, to go about doing this in a, in a, in a, a, a bit of a rigorous fashion um, and making sure that we get to some of these harder to reach communities. Um, last but not least, uh, the academic Experts, um, we had some detailed conversations about ways uh, to uh, make some improvements to the onshore oil and gas program. Good conversation about partnerships. There's a lot out there, and we should always aim to be leaning into that. Um, and then, sort of, uh, uh, you know, sort of almost an economic discussion about how do we, you know, account for the externalities of climate change in terms of, you know, pricing and other decisions that we might make um, or recommendations we might make with regard to how we manage these programs. So um, inevitably that was imperfect, but I wanted to try and do a recap. Um, I'm really grateful um, to hear all the different perspectives that people brought to the conversation today. Um, I want to 
we express appreciation again that folks took time out of their days to do this. Um, we're busy. This is hard. Uh, the remote thing, although it allows us to come together, is also inevitably imperfect. So uh, I know we're used to appearing like this, but um, and I, I'm just grateful it allowed us to bring so many people in to the conversation. So and and thanks too to everyone who um, I know we had a. Um, a listenership uh, out there. Um, and uh, if you've stuck with us for all or part of it, we're really grateful. We hope you, like we have, you know, watched and listened and thought about what folks were saying and what we were hearing. Uh, it was, uh, it, I feel like we got a lot of different perspectives and we have a lot to take in and think through as we go back to our day jobs. Um, and last but not least, and certainly not least, I want to send a shout out to our amazing tech team. This was really, really flawless. There's so many people in the background and behind the scenes that made this flow and go well, um, including our heroic moderator, Connie Gillette. So thank you to everyone. They brought us together. This is a virtual success and an actual success. Um, final word. The written um, information opportunity, uh, energy review at ios.doi.gov. Just a reminder, don't treat this as a public comment period. We're not in a formal proceeding here, but we really are interested in hearing, like I said before, your substantive and innovative thinking on all these issues that we talked about today and improvements that we can make and things that we might not have thought about. So, um, you know, consider an opportunity to provide us with some input and insights we might not otherwise hear. Um, and just uh, deep appreciation and thanks again to everyone for joining us today. Um, I know it was a few hours together, but um, I certainly got a lot out of it. And I know our team here did. And we um, look forward to uh, talking more about this really, really important set of issues that is just fundamental to, um, I'm going to go back to what Sharon Vicino said the decisions that we make related to climate, related to these programs and to the work that we do, they're going to make all the difference for our kids and our grandkids. And that's really got to be our North Star in the work that we're doing. So thank you, everybody. Um, Connie, are we good? Are we good to go? Yes, we're good. I just wanted to mention that the recording of today's video will be made available on Interior's YouTube channel. And thank you everyone and please stay safe and take care.